It's a great blessing to be together according to the Lord's design. In the first of the week, He's called us to come together to worship Him and in conjunction this way and to stir one another up to love and good works and to share in the delights of being a part of this family that He's made us. We thank you for being with us, the encouragement it, it brings to us to have you visitors with us as well, uh, as many as are visiting as well online. We're so thankful for your presence with us. And the best way that we can help you and encourage you this day is to open our uh, Bibles together. We pray that you'll join us in that. The basis for our study today will be in, in Ephesians 3. We'll be talking in just a moment about God's wisdom made known through the church. But I want to confess it is an exciting time to be a part of the work here at Eastside. We are uh, digging deeply into a study of shepherds and what those look like according to God's plan and our intent and hope to establish shepherds here among the flock, uh, perhaps by the end of this year. What a great blessing that is. I'm thankful for uh, the attitude and the heart that wants to dig in and see how God would have us to do that. We are expanding our outreach by these electronic media that are around us, and we're thankful to be able to do that. What a, what a blessing that's been. Thankful for those who've been behind the scenes working on that, who are behind the scenes now working on that. I know it's a bit of a distraction at this point still as we're learning how to do all of these things, but what a blessing they are. And it's a blessing to be learning how to worship more fully and learning some new songs and all of these things working together make it a, a great time to be a part of the work here. There are new members among us. We're having more and more visitors and all of those things are a great blessing. But of course, we want to make sure that as we're learning about how to worship more properly, as Grady's been preaching and I've been studying through uh, in Acts chapter 2 what the early church did as part of their work, we want to make sure that we're focusing on the proper way to get to that. One of the blessings from my recent trip to Brazil was a lesson that Dennis Allen put together on the work of the church. There's a lot of brand new Christians in Brazil, a lot of people that just never thought about how the work of the church ought to be done in a way that glorifies God. And so I'm unashamedly bringing his lesson to you. The arrangement for this lesson is from him. I fleshed it out a little bit, but I want you to understand, I think there is a blessing in being able to preach somebody else's lesson you don't think that I'm just saying, look what I've seen you doing, let's fix it. <laughs> this is just what the Bible says about how the church ought to be doing its work. And someone else arranged this lesson, and I'm going to share it with you because I think it's a commendable lesson. And I want to challenge you to sort of consider the way we think about the work that the church does. I think typically what we do, I was speaking with a brother about this yesterday, is we sort of look around us and see what everybody's doing. We see what looks like it works and we think, well, those, those guys have got it right. They've got it, they've got it going on. And so we think, let's try to do some of that. But we ought to be first looking at what God says we ought to be doing. And then growing in that, and that'll bring the glory to Him. God's manifold wisdom is now made known through the church. And I think it's interesting in this context, verse 9, that is meant to make all see. What is the fellowship of the mystery that's been hidden in God from the beginning? And that is that all people are going to be brought into salvation. This is not just a plan for Adam and Eve and their immediate children. Uh, they were the first ones to receive that sort of promise that their son would stamp out the head of the serpent. This is not just for Abraham's descendants, as the promise then was handed to him in Genesis 12. In fact, in that promise, he says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. And yet somehow the, the descendants of Abraham that became the Jews sort of missed out on that promise. They couldn't see that fulfillment. But God has fulfilled salvation going out to the ends of the earth to all people through the church. But he says in verse 10, in the, King, the New King James says, to the intent that now 
the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. <laughs> there is a spiritual battle going on. There's a spiritual realm that is observing God's wisdom that has been hidden down through the ages that they can now see. It's now been made manifest. The, the evil side are losers and the church is the winner. <laughs> this is how God designed His glory to be manifest among the peoples and even in the heavenly places where the spiritual battle is going on. And so what we need to be thinking about is, is the church that God designed sufficient for, I'm going the wrong direction, sorry. Is the church that God designed sufficient for manifesting the wisdom of God? And I want to affirm, that's a question, but I want to affirm that it absolutely is. God did not design something that is imperfect or insufficient to do His will. But that's the question that comes up, and I think we'll see why that question comes up, because people have rejected God's plan and have sought after something else. They think, that's not enough. People aren't going to be fascinated by that, so let's do something that'll draw people in. And then we'll start talking about God a little bit. And it's backwards. And I want to challenge us not to make that mistake, as we're trying to grow in our ability to serve God and to help others to do that. So the first thing we need to think about is, we're accustomed to this concept of accepting the limits that God establishes. We see this in several places. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, as Paul's talking about the division in the church there, how they're following after men, some are of Apollos, some are of Paul, some are of Cephas. They're following after men. He says, that's, that's divisive. That's not what we came to teach. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, These things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Don't think beyond what is written. You listen to what God said and you base your decisions and your work on that. That's something we're, we're accustomed to thinking about. In 2 John verse 9, he's talking about those who have brought a false doctrine in and he's talking about what ought to limit that. 2 John verse 9, whoever transgresses, whoever goes beyond and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. We understand. People adding to the gospel don't have the Son, don't have the Father. We're limiting ourselves by what the gospel has revealed if we want to be serving Christ. And Colossians 3.17 tells us very clearly that we ought to do all things in the name of the Lord. Now, there is a caveat. We talked about it in our class this morning in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, the ones who came out and said, Lord, Lord, have we not done these wonderful works in your name? And Jesus says, I don't know who you are. <laughs> I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Iniquity means they didn't follow the law. They didn't follow what had been revealed. They did what they wanted and claimed, we did that for the Lord. <laughs> and I think we can clearly see that that happens a lot. People are doing things that they want to glorify God with, but they haven't consulted Him first. And so they do things in ways that don't glorify God. The great example in our class this morning, 1 Samuel 15, was King Saul. As God told him to utterly destroy the Amalekites, but he brought back the king, there was going to be a show of putting the king down, maybe himself with his foot on the king's neck. And he brought back some of the animals, the, the good animals, to sacrifice to the Lord, but the sacrifice the Lord had asked them to do was to destroy the Amalekites and all of their things utterly. But they brought it back for show. Because that would appear more glorious than just doing what God had said to do. And really, the gospel and the functioning of the church is simple. But man wants to complicate it. Man wants to build it up and make it look more glorious than what God himself has established as what will bring glory to him. When we do things his way, 
we glorify him. When we do it our way, man ends up having this divisive spirit. Well, that's not the way I would do it. Well, that's not the way I would do it. And then there's division. Do what God says and we can all agree on that. There's two aspects of the church that we're going to have to understand if we're going to, to understand how to do the church's work. And the first of those is this concept of the universal church. That's the, the word where Catholic comes from. But the idea is found in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse uh, 23, uh, verse 22 and following, the Hebrew writer says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, that's universal assembly in some translations, and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. This is just all of the saints. This would include people like Adam, people like Noah, people like Moses. This is the universal church. It's everybody who's ever belonged to the kingdom of God is, is included in this. Obviously, everybody who's serving the Lord faithfully at this time on earth would be part of this universal church as well. And so uh, this is the body of Christ in the biggest possible sense. If we'll go back in, in Ephesians where we, where we started our reading, if you'll uh, go back to Ephesians chapter 1, this is the sense in which Paul is talking about the body of Christ here. Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23, He, God, put all things under His, Jesus' feet, and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. In chapter 3 and verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same body. The Gentiles and Jews brought together in one body, which is the church. They become partakers of Christ through the gospel. In chapter 4 and verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. That's a concept that's so hard, perhaps, for religious people to understand, that God designed one church. So why do we see 50 million different churches? Well, there is a concept of local. We'll see that in a moment, and that's a legitimate concept. But 50,000 different denominations is not what God had in mind. That is not the plan that he has created in, in his word. So the body of Christ, in a generic sense, is the universal church. And it is, according to Ephesians 3 in this context, it is sufficient to manifest the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God. All the different aspects of his church demonstrate his wisdom when man does what God said. <laughs> But when we begin to invent our own way of doing things, we're not showing his wisdom anymore. We're not following his leadership. This body is made up of members that are joined to Christ, who is the head. Still in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, here's the way we get there. Speaking the truth in love, we grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. How does the church grow? The teaching of God's word and the practice of God's word. And everybody grows individually to make a mature body. So over and over we get this concept of individuals joined to Christ as the head. What we don't see in the New Testament is an affiliation of local churches. That local churches never banded together to become sort of this agglomeration. The model that the world sees when they think of this universal church is that Christ is the head and then there's the Baptist church and the Catholic church and whatever other church. And so you have all these different bodies that all have different governing corporations and those are all sort of tied into Christ as the head. We see no evidence of that, none whatsoever in the New Testament. That is a man-made concept. It's a governmental kind of concept. You can see 
how men came to that understanding, but it is not a biblical understanding. There's no evidence of an affiliation of local churches working together to be the body under the head of Christ. It just is not, it's foreign to the New Testament. God, therefore, provided no mechanism for a collective work of the universal church. He is not provided in the New Testament for two churches to band together to join their, their offering and then do a work, the two of them something bigger than the local church itself. This may be a challenging concept. I hope it is in some way. I want us to be thinking about this. This is not going to be the only lesson on this subject, but I want us to see what the foundation is that God is teaching. And he has not provided any mechanism for the universal church to do its work. Now that sounds like, okay, then how are we ever getting anything done? Well, that's where the local church comes in. So let's think about this as a local church, for example, where we are. This is a local body of believers. And this is the level at which the church functions, if you will, in which it does its work. Examine with me Acts chapter 9, for example. In Acts chapter 9, Verses 26 through 28, here is Saul has just been converted. He's actually a couple of years into his conversion, if you look at the timeline properly. He's been in Damascus, and now he's coming back to Jerusalem. Now, when he left Jerusalem, he was a murderous Pharisee going out to kill Christians. But he comes back, and he wants to join the local group in, in Jerusalem. That's a big congregation. There's thousands in Jerusalem right now. But Paul wants to join with them, and so here's what we have. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, Acts 9, 26, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, going in, uh, coming in and going out. That idea is he was involved in all the work that they were doing in Jerusalem. They, they embraced him finally at Barnabas's uh, uh, appeal. In Acts chapter 11, Paul and Barnabas are going to be together again. This is at the church in Antioch, the first time Jews and Gentiles are worshiping actively together. Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and I want you to notice the local flavor of what's going on here. He went to Tarsus to seek Saul. Saul had, had gone off there, uh, being run out of town by the, by the jealous Jews in Jerusalem. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch, so it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The church is actively teaching, a local body actively teaching in Antioch. In these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Notice that the local church made a determination of what they were going to do to help brethren in another place. Now, this is still not a conglomeration of churches getting together and deciding how best to serve the needy. This is a local church saying, we've heard there's a need. This Agabus came and told us about this. And we want to send some, some funds from among us to help them. And so the local church made that decision. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're not going to read that, but I was talking about the division before. That's at a local level where the brethren are being divided over who they're going to follow. One's of Apollos, one's of Paul, one's of Cephas. But he says, there's division among you, among this local body in Corinth. There was decisions being made that weren't good decisions, and they were dividing themselves over that. But you get the local idea, this local flavor, this smaller version of a, of a body that is working together. So it's at this level 
that the church is organized for its work. If this is the level at which God expects the church to do its work, God himself has organized the church at this level. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, we see a bit of a definition of that. As Paul is writing there to the church at Philippi, and he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. The bishops is a word that's used later uh, in conjunction with the eldership or with the pastors. That's who's being talked about here. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, he tells Titus that he needs to set things in order and establish elders, bishops, pastors in every city, in each locality, not to set up a bishop over the island of Crete, but to set up bishops or elders in every city. They're going to be local. They're going to be working with the local groups. And the deacons are also working with the local group. The idea is that the group is going to be making decisions, going to be electing people from among their membership, from among that, that body, people they know. And they see that, that meet these qualifications, these qualities. The local church, just as the universal, belongs to God and works by and under his authority. So the first Corinthians chapter one, verse two, he calls them a church of God, which is at Corinth. They belong to him. Now they're not doing very well. He's going to get on their case a lot, but they're there by God. In first Corinthians 12, he gives a little bit of an understanding about this. And I really love this text starting at verse four. He's talking about a problem they're having. He's correcting a problem, but notice the unity under God by which they ought to be serving. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. At the local level, they all had work to do, and they ought to be doing it, but they're dividing themselves over it, and some are trying to to, uh, make themselves look bigger than the others. Uh, Philippians 1, that's a church of Christ that's in Philippi. This concept that God is among them, uh, and you even see that in the book of Revelation as Jesus is among the candle stands there, and he's saying, I can remove your candle stand. He's talking about local congregations in all of those uh, cases. And what we need to understand, and what we'll see, I believe, as we go through this, is that all financial aspects of church work are handled at the local level. That, again, is maybe something new that we need to be thinking about. But that is the plan that God has established. In 1 Corinthians 16, he says, I want you to do the same thing that I taught, and I want you to notice this, the churches of Galatia, <laughs> individual congregations, there's Lystra, Derby, Iconium, those are all churches of Galatia, and each one individually was going to do the same thing that Corinth was going to do individually. Now, Paul himself was going to sort of spearhead the collecting of these funds to take to somebody who had need, but he didn't didn't command them to do it. They wanted to be a part of it. He just ordained the functioning, the way it was going to happen. And it was at the local level that each member determined, according to their ability, how much they would give. And then he would come around and would orchestrate how it would would be carried just to facilitate And you'll notice that even in the text that talk about that, members from those local congregations would go representing those congregations with Paul. He wasn't just joining all the money together and taking that as their representative. Representatives from each congregation would travel with him. He was very careful about that because he wanted others to see that the Lord's work was being done in the Lord's way. And he wasn't sort of spearheading this campaign to gather all this money and then he would distribute it as he saw fit. That's not at all what we see as the pattern in the New Testament. 
So you've got the church universal as the overall body of Christ, but the functioning unit of the church is the local church. That's where the work is done. And for that work to be done, we need to understand that God has provided all that is needed. We don't need to invent anything else. We need to look to see what God says about how the work needs to be done. We really understand that. We talk about these things all the time. That individuals, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, if they are studying the Bible as they ought, individuals are equipped to do every good work. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Individuals in these local congregations, as they're studying their word and growing in their understanding, growing in their desire to work, are equipped to do every good work that God has for them to do. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, I think sometimes we don't believe what God says here, but I think this is imperative that we not only read this, but understand and believe it. He tells us that by his divine power, God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. In short, through his word, God has revealed to us all that we need for this life, to be able to serve and do the things we need for this life, to prepare then for the afterlife, the things that pertain to godliness. It's through his word that we've been given all that we need. (laughs) That is, it may sound hard to believe, but it's God we're talking about. And if we're willing to trust him and to do what his word says, we have all we need. That's a superlative, both of those, equipped for every good work, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He didn't leave anything out, didn't leave anything up to us to sort of make up how we're going to do it. He's given it all to us. And the way that that functions, in Ephesians 4, the context is the universal church, but I want you to notice that it's got an aspect both universally and locally in what he provides for here. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, this great text where Jesus has conquered the enemy and he's brought gifts from the battle, and the gifts are men. <laughs> now, that's a that's sort of a strange-sounding phrase in our feministic uh, society that we live in, but the idea is these gifts are servants. The ones that were captured, that were serving the enemy, have now given themselves to serving the capturing king. And look what a blessing that is for the body that the king has brought. So I'm going to read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And I want to notice a couple of uh, uh, universal and local aspects of what's involved here. He himself gave these gifts that he brought, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God has prepared the church to be able to grow by itself through the teaching of his word. He originally set that down through apostles and prophets who revealed his word at the outset. And then he left that revealed word in the hands of evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Evangelists 
I see as parallel to the apostles. The evangelists, pastors, and teachers are working with the word that's already been revealed. The evangelists, on a parallel to the apostles, their main goal is to get the word out, as the apostles did. Prophets seem to be more local. That's what was going on in 1 Corinthians 12. The prophets were trying to do more tongue speaking than the others or had a different revelation and they were out speaking each other. And so they had this confusion going on. That was at a local level, typically. Occasionally we see a prophet that will go out as well. But the universal aspect of the word was done through the apostles and prophets. They laid down God's word. Then evangelists, pastors, and teachers took up the word that had been laid down and they continued teaching it and expounding upon it so people could understand it, but not creating anything new at this point. Pastors and teachers are at a local level for certain. Those are the bishops over a local body. And the evangelist then would take the word out. Maybe he's fixed for a while in a local body, but he's taking the word out even to the community there. And so there's a universal and a local aspect to these gifts that God had given. And that's for the edifying of the church universal and also for the edifying of the church local. But all of that is done through the teaching of God's word. There's nothing else that's going to edify the church except the teaching of God's word. And if we're not doing that, we're not edifying. If it's anything else, and we'll see some distractions from that in just a moment. But what I want to submit to you is that it is the utmost in arrogance to think that we might improve on God's provision, on his plan. He says in every one of these cases, he has provided all that's needed. And yet, would we be willing to look at the church and say, but that's not enough. (laughs) That's not good enough. People aren't going to come for that. I've heard the excuse before, you need X because you can't get the kids to come unless you've got X. (laughs) The truth won't draw people who are seeking the truth, even if they're young. It should. (laughs) The truth has a great appeal to it, and most people aren't hearing it. Social justice, they're they're crying for truth. Now, they don't know what they want. They're crying out for social justice, but what they want is justice, righteousness, truth. Only God provides that. (laughs) All kinds of confusion that people are trying to work their way through. What they're looking for is truth, (laughs) and darkness is all that's being offered. If we'll offer the truth, people who want the truth will be drawn to that. Not everybody's going to be drawn to that. Not everybody wants the truth. That's part of the problem. And so we try to make an appeal, and we want to sort of dumb down the truth of God so that people will accept it. But when Jesus was teaching the truth and people decided they wanted to go away, he even turned to the apostles and said, don't you also want to go? They said, no, you've got the truth. You've got the word of life and that's what we need. And those who are seeking that, the truth will appeal to them. God's word was meant to do that. When he sent Isaiah out, he said, I want you to preach so that they'll shut their ears and close their eyes. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They don't want to see the truth. You go preach anyway. Some will see and some will hear. The majority won't because they don't want the truth of God. But the church was set up to be ministering the church of God, the the truth of God. So there are some dangerous tendencies that come when we try to do better than God, when we believe for some reason that God's plan is just not enough, that we've got to have something else to appeal to the others that aren't willing to listen to the word of God. And so I want to talk about in general, these three dangerous tendencies. One is to change the mission of the church. And I want to I want you to understand these things are often intermingled. We sort of do all these together. But we end up changing the mission of the church. The mission is to save lost souls. But people don't want their, their soul saved. They want a nice time. <laughs> they want to come where they're comfortable, where they feel welcomed, where, where they feel like people really appreciate them. But they don't ever learn to appreciate God. <laughs> uh, the change the mission of the church is dangerous because you create people that feel like they're saved I want you to notice one of the big tools that Satan uses in the book of Revelation is mimicking the Christ. (laughs) You've got the lamb who was slain and yet is alive and is preaching. 
And you've got this dragon who's got these heads, and one was slain, but is yet alive. And then he, he sort of sounds like the lamb, but he looks like the dragon. And he looks like the lamb, but he sounds like the dragon. So there's all this mimicry going on. If Satan can get people to believe they're doing what God wants, then he's done. <laughs> and they'll just go on doing whatever they think is pleasing to God. And on the day of judgment, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, I never knew you. <laughs> you said you did these works in my name, but did you ever consult me to see what I wanted you to do? You worked iniquity. <laughs> what a depressing, horrible thought that is. For people who are actively involved, engaged in work, but is it the Lord's work? The second thing that happens in this dangerous tendency is to create human institutions to get the work done that needs done. We, we create a work, and the local body just can't meet that work, and so we've got to make something bigger and better to meet that work now, because it's an important work. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> if the local body cannot do that work, then it's not a work that God has set up for the local body to do. He has provided everything for it. And if we can't do it, then we've created a work that's bigger than the local body. It's not God's work, and it's not going to glorify Him. And so what happens, these sort of work together, is we begin to modify God's plan for the organization of the church. We need to change the way it's organized so we can meet this need that we've created, that we think is a good need, because we've changed the mission of the church. And so you can see how those sort of play into each other. So let's examine those a little bit more closely. What happens with changing the mission? Remember, we've got to accept what God has authorized. There's a great principle to this in Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, those of you who know me very well know that I'm going to get to Leviticus eventually. I just love this book. But Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. What happens with Nadab and Abihu is a principle for us. But I want you to listen to God's response, what the problem was. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. I think we can infer from this that Nadab and Abihu did not regard God as holy. When they offered whatever God had not authorized, what he had not ordained, they just offered up, it's fire, right? Fire is fire. We are the priests. We've got the censer. They're offering the very first offering on the day that the, the tabernacle is first being used. Aaron has done his part, and now the priests are coming, and I believe they're doing the morning sacrifice. And they come up and they put this fire on their censers and offer what God had not commanded them. They did not regard him as holy. They saw this is our opportunity to do something as the priests. <laughs> and they did what they wanted to do. And he says... I must be glorified. It does not glorify God when we do things our way. It glorifies God when we accept His limits and do things His way. Who gets the credit? God. Why did you do it like that? God said so. <laughs> That's the response. And so accepting limits, we talked about earlier. So the limits that God has placed, and this sounds maybe too limiting, but He's, he's given us this as His authority for the church, a spiritual work. The local church, and the church universal for that matter, is set up to preach the Word of God, to edify its own members, and to bring others into edification by teaching them the truth, and to worship Him. That's the spiritual work of the church. That doesn't sound like very much. <laughs> That's all. That's all God wants us to do. We've got a lifetime it's going to take us to figure out how to do that properly. And we're only going to do it properly if we're, if we're doing it under his authority and, and limiting ourselves to what he's revealed. There is some material work 
First off, we need to provide for the spiritual work. We've got to be able to, to fund the preaching. I just took a trip to Brazil. I'm so thankful that you guys helped me with that trip. I couldn't have done that on my own, but you guys sent me. Now, I didn't go there because it was carnival so I could go to the beach and hang out. I went there to teach the Word of God, and I'm thankful that you provided for me being able to do that. You provided this local congregation the funds for a local member to be able to go somewhere else and preach. We see that pattern, by the way, in the New Testament over and over. As people would send Paul or they would send Timothy, and he says, be sure you send them on their way. He's talking about finances in those phrases. You, you honor men like this, sending them on their way. <laughs> So they'll have no need as they go out to preach. That's part of the material work of a local congregation. And then there is assistance for the needy saints. And we'll take a look at that in a little bit uh, later in Acts chapter 6, how they handled that among their own needy members. And then we saw the example in Acts 11 where they heard there was a need somewhere else that those brethren couldn't meet, and so they decided they would send some help. It's still not the same thing we see in the institutionalized world of religion today but it was local members making a local decision to help somebody in another locality. What are some of the works of churches? And I put works in quotes because it is a work, but as we saw with 1 Samuel 15, Sam, uh, Saul was doing the work, but he wasn't doing the work that God told him to do. He was busy, but not doing what God said. So here are some works that men have added to the churches. Entertainment that is a big thing. That's the thing... You can't get the youth if you're not going to entertain them. So you got to have the movie night, you got to have the bowling alley, you got to have the basketball team, you got to have all of these socially focused activities because otherwise they're going to get involved in socially condemning things. I understand the, the, the preoccupation, I understand the worry there. But how do we meet that? Not by creating something in the church that's socially focused, by teaching them spiritually focused how to order their lives in the right way. So that what appeals to them is not the things that are rooted in this world, but the things that would help them to get to life and godliness in the next world. Entertainment has been added by men. Benevolent works for non-Christians. Churches have been seen, we get people coming in occasionally thinking that our, our main reason for being here is to provide for somebody who walks in off the street and starts asking for money. That is not what we're here about. The, that's not part of the mission of the church. Now, it may sound cold to say we're not just here to give money to needy people. I'm not saying we shouldn't give money to needy people. I'm saying it's not a work of the church. It is a work of individuals, and we'll talk about that in a moment as well. I have a responsibility to my fellow man. As a, as a servant of God, I do. But the church is set up as a body for a different mission than what I'm set up for as an individual. What about a church building a hospital? I was born in a St. Mary and Elizabeth hospital. That is a Catholic organization in, in Louisville, Kentucky. There's an Adventist hospital there. There's a Baptist, there's several Baptist hospitals there. All of these great religious entities building and, and making function hospitals or daycares or orphanages or other social institutions that are so much bigger than the local congregation can handle. So they have to have a community of Baptist churches get together to fund that, which the government ought to be funding. And they've divorced the truth of what the mission of the church is from what they're doing. I was born at St. Mary and Elizabeth. Nobody ever taught me to be a Catholic there. <laughs> I've gone to the Adventist hospital. No one ever said that I need to be an Adventist. At the Baptist, all they're doing is taking care of my physical needs. No one ever talked to me about the Lord. What happened? <laughs> now, originally, the idea was if we build these to take care of people's bodies, we can talk to them about their spirit. That doesn't ever happen. <laughs> that is not the work of the church to do that. Institutions for secular education, that's a big thing. Well, we've got to give them something better. 
So we'll just set up a school and, and, and teach their secular education for them. We decided to homeschool for that reason. Uh, not everybody has to do that. Government has provided schools and it's, they're functional, but it's not a work of the church. It's not even a work of the church to educate, educate your children in Christ. That's a function that we've decided locally we want to help with, but it's the, the job of the family. It's the job of the parents to do that. And if you're not doing that, you shouldn't just ship that off on the church. That's putting a burden on the church that's not part of their mission. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, you teach your children when you walk by the way, when you lay down, when you rise up. You sharpen their heads, literally is the verb there, I love that. You sharpen their heads with the, with the word of God. That's what parents ought to be doing. That's not something the church was designed to do. There are some imperative distinctions we need to make between the church and what its mission is and individual saints. In James chapter 1, he says true religion, undefiled religion, is meeting the orphan and the widow in their need. And so... Some of us have decided to adopt orphaned children. What a blessing that is. Many of us are trying to help as much as we can with some of the widows in our number. But individually, we're doing that. And that is a mission that we can, that we can handle individually. God has given us that. In James chapter 1, he's talking to individuals, not to a church. Uh, there is a distinction that needs to be made between what is a good work, something we see as a good work, and something that is every good work that God has designed. God's work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he has prepared individual Christians for every good work, whether with the church, what its mission is, or individually, what their mission is as an individual Christian. But we need to make that distinction. Not everything the individual Christian can do is something that the, the church ought to be doing. And we need to understand that. And we'll talk more about that one more deeply in another lesson. What about human institutions? This is the second thing, and you can see how that bridges from the first one. You, you, you have this concept, this errant concept about what the mission is, so then you need some kind of an institution to help with your, with your new mission that's gone beyond what God had, had revealed. Do we ever see any of these things in the New Testament? Have you ever seen a missionary society in the New Testament? I know there's a lot of them that exist today. Do you see any in the New Testament? Is it just because they hadn't evolved enough in the doctrine? <laughs> the whole doctrine was laid down. I was studying with the family this morning in Galatians chapter 1, and Paul said, if anybody brings anything else except what you've heard, let them be anathema. That's to the Galatian church. The letter's written at the latest about 55 AD, <laughs> which means they had something to compare the truth against these lies that were coming in. They already knew the body of the doctrine. We got it later in the revelation of the letters because Paul was writing to correct people who had gotten things wrong. Remember what I taught you when I was there? That's the doctrine. This is what you've been doing. Fix it. <laughs> That's the blessing of having these letters is we see them fixing things that needed fixed. And so we can tell what the doctrine was by what they weren't doing and then by what they were taught to do. But missionary societies we don't see. Church-funded colleges and universities. Somebody said, what about the school of Tyrannus? <laughs> well, it looks like they were renting a space there to be able to meet. We don't see anything about them going to school there. That's not part of the text. But they were teaching the gospel there. What a blessing. They had a space to do that in. Secular preparatory schools, we mentioned that, church-run hospitals, orphanages. What about a facility for the elderly? There are going to be elderly who have needs, maybe among your own congregation. What do they do in Acts chapter 6? <laughs> Well, we decided to get the whole church, more than 5,000 men. I don't know how many members there must have been. We were told there were more than 5,000 men already just before that text. And they got them all together and said, we need to build an old folks home. <laughs> we need to build a, 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 a life assistance facility. No. We need to appoint some men from among our number who can go out and help with these people. It's a local activity. There was nothing bigger made than that. So the apostles could continue teaching and praying 
and these people could meet the needs of these elderly and widows among them. We don't see church-funded youth camps in the New Testament. I'm not against youth camps, <laughs> not at all. In fact, we're trying to, to have a, a sort of a retreat and members of the congregation here are helping to fund that, but it is not a work of the church. It is a work of individuals. It has a spiritual focus even, but we just don't see that thing that is bigger than the local church in the context of the New Testament. It is simply something that's been added. We just don't see it. There's a critical question. In Mark chapter 11, they challenge Jesus about why he turned over the money changers' tables. Who does he think he is? And they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And the implication is, we didn't tell you you could do this. This temple is ours. Uh, by the way, he, it's his temple. <laughs> He's the Lord. And he says, well, let me ask you a question. The baptism of John, is that from heaven or is that from men? If you answer me that, then I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Well, they reason among themselves, well, if we say it's from heaven, he'll say, why weren't you baptized? Because they weren't. <laughs> And if we say it's from men, well, all the people are going to be against us because they think John's a prophet. And so we better say we don't know. Well, they were dishonest. And Jesus saw the hardness of their hearts. And he said, then you won't know where my authority comes from either. <laughs> you won't understand that. I'm not going to even bother to tell you. His authority is from heaven. But the question he asked, I think, is, is imperative. It's something we ought to ask about every single thing that we try to bring in, that we think is a good idea, that we want to incorporate into our worship. Is this from heaven? Or is this from men? Did I think this was a good idea? Or did I see somewhere here that God said, that's what we need to be doing? <laughs> it's a critical question. And I'm afraid it's one we don't ask often enough. I think we often ask, what's working? <laughs> Let's do that. Is it from heaven or is it from men? That's the question. What about modifying the organization? Some of this will be real obvious. Organization that we see in the New Testament, you have elders, pastors, or bishops over a local church. Acts 14.23 Paul and Barnabas went back through all the cities where they had taught on their first missionary journey, and they helped them to promote the election of elders in all of these local congregations, not one over the Galatians. It's interesting, we have a Galatian letter. It's written to the churches of Galatia. Why don't they just make a bishop over Galatia? Later, the Catholics did that. <laughs> but that is not what we see in the New Testament. Each city, each congregation had their own elders. Philippians 1, to the saints at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Titus 1, verse 5, in every city establish elders. It is a local work that has elders from that flock, not even somebody they sent over there to be the pastor. It's somebody who came from that flock. When extreme needs arose, what do we see as their pattern? Churches that are richer than the one who has the need will send sometimes to poorer ones. The churches in Corinth, the churches of Achaia, were very rich. Paul was, was challenging them, saying that the churches of Macedonia, who were poor, had already taken up a collection, and you rich Corinthians are sitting around. Make sure you're getting done what you have, have planned to do. The idea to make that collection was theirs anyway. Paul just ordained how they should do it. But these that had funds at the time sent to others. Look what Paul says. I love this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, verses 13 and 14. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. Right now you have and they don't. Why don't you make an offering of love and send it to them? And that's what they did. <laughs> and then when they have some time, maybe they'll send to you. There's a reason I've set this one up this way, that the, the richer churches, the Macedonians were poor. But the people in Judea were suffering in a famine. And so the Macedonians were richer than they were at that moment. And they were able in their abundance, which was slight, to send something to the brethren and participate. They begged Paul 
Paul tried to dissuade them, it seems. They begged him to participate in the grace of giving to the needy saints. And we see that in the case of preaching, churches sent wages. Paul calls it wages, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 8. I robbed wages from other churches to be able to preach to you, O Corinthians. Churches were sending directly to him. In Philippians chapter 4, he thanks them because Epaphroditus came and brought this sweet-smelling aroma from them, a sacrifice of love. It was money that he needed to be able to continue preaching. And we see that over and over. Individual local congregations sent directly to those who were preaching. There was no middleman who would decide how it would work out. But what do we see in today's religious world? What is it that uh, men have decided is necessary because the church just can't do what God wants it to do? We see regional bishops. That's a Catholic idea. You've got the diocese, you've got the bishop over that, and you've got the head over him, and you've got a cardinal, then you've got finally the pope somewhere up there. That is not... We, we can clearly see that. I don't think it's hard for us to see that men just made that up. We don't see that in the New Testament at all. But really, evangelical churches just copied that governmental setup. And so you've got the, the whatever the, the, the main office of the church is. You've got the head pastor there. He decides after they've gone through their pastoral schools who gets sent off where. And so people get shipped off. And they become pastors over cities. And, so, and then you've got some that are sub-pastors. And you've got the pastors in the local congregations. It's the same setup. But we call it different words. Instead of father, bishop, or whatever, it's pastor. That is not a biblical model. It's unfortunate that's the major model that most churches see, but that's not the biblical model. You see poor churches today that have hardly any money saying, we can't really afford to do anything, but that church can, and so we'll send all our money to them, and they'll figure out how to do it, and they'll distribute it out to wherever the needs are, and then we feel like we've done our work. And so what happens is we parcel off our work by just saying, well, I've paid for that already. I gave it the door. I gave it the office, whatever. Instead of us trying to figure out with our funds, with our capacity, with our growing here, what we really can do in the local community, we end up sending it off to someone who distributes it somewhere else. That is not God's design. And churches who send funds then to missionary societies or other social uh, setups that need aid other places in the world so that those can then distribute those where the need is. These all sound like great ideas. I know they do. And sometimes it's hard to see that's not what the New Testament teaches because we've heard this for so long. They seem like great ideas on the surface, but who came up with them? Are they from heaven? Or are they from men? Do they work in the way that men have designed them to? I want to go ahead and tell you they don't. There may be a few out there that do, but most of them you get siphoning of funds. You have to pay somebody at the, at the central place. The money goes through several hands and several exchanges, and by the time it gets there, it's not what started out, what may have been a good intention. I think a lot of Catholic ideas were well-intentioned. But by the time you get to where the practice is on the individual level, it's not doing what originally it was set up to do. A rosary is a great idea. Let's remember to pray a bunch of times during the day. But when it becomes just some kind of a rote memorization of saying these same words over and over, what good is that? It ends up being lost in translation. And I want to say to you, that's what happens in these societies that are set up. I'm not saying individuals shouldn't be trying to figure out ways to use their funds and maybe get them to Africa where you can't go. That's fine. It's not a work of a church. And it's unfortunate that's what churches end up getting involved in and creating things that are bigger than what God designed and God doesn't get the glory. <laughs> right, so I said all this, and so maybe you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? Aren't we just trying to glorify God and get all this work done in the world? Absolutely. What's the big deal? There's a subtle change at first in the focus from the spiritual to the material. Jesus said very clearly, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. 
What are you treasuring? Are you treasuring men's souls and your heart set on helping them to get those taken care of? Are you treasuring these poor kids in Africa that need water mission? And so you're going to send all your money to do that. Okay, fill them with water. Help them get healthy, but never teach them the gospel? Have we failed the mission of the church if we do that? Absolutely. Mother Teresa changed the, the caste system among the people she worked with in, in India. What a blessing. What a great thing that was. Wouldn't it have been better if she had taught them the gospel? Which, as a Catholic, she herself, in part and parcel at least, rejected. She didn't even have what they really needed. She gave them water, which helped them temporarily. I'm not saying don't send water. I'm not saying these aren't things that individually you might want to get really moved by and do. What I'm saying is it's not the spiritual mission of the church. And we burden what the church's real mission is when we try to create these other things that God has not designed the church to do. And there's a subtle change from the spiritual to the material to where you can go into some of these churches and their only focus is the material. I don't think they started that way. But you can see it really clearly. From the time you go in till the time you leave, all they're talking about is the material, even the fact that they're asking for money all the time, all the time, all the time. <laughs> and all they're talking about is your body and not your soul. It's a big deal because there's a foolish belief behind it that we can improve on God's plan for His work. What did Paul say happens when we reject God Himself and are not thankful for His setup? To use the language of Paul in Romans 1, 21 and 22, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, Allah, Nadab, and Abihu. They did what they wanted to. They didn't glorify God as God. They knew Him. They didn't do His things in His way. They weren't thankful. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It is foolish to think we can improve on God's design. It simply is. And we may have good intentions, but our futile hearts become darkened in that. And professing to be wise in our intentions, we become fools in our practice when we try to improve on what God has already revealed. And really, the danger is this seeking to attract and impress people of the world who aren't interested in the things of God by showing them that we can be interested in the same things they are interested in. We can offer something that's not the gospel and hope that maybe somehow that will end up saving their souls. It's the bait and switch. When I was a non-Christian, it really got on my nerves. How churches would offer food or a basketball program, or come join our choir and travel to Texas, or whatever it was. And they, when I was a teenager, they would send all these things out, offering these great, fun-sounding things. But I knew if I went, at some point, they'd start trying to talk to me about Jesus. <laughs> so I liked the social, but I wasn't interested in the other. When they weren't really even offering the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe. <laughs> Not a church basketball team. Not a fundraiser where you're washing cars and giving people some food. It's the gospel. Matthew 28, when Jesus sent the apostles out into the world, he said, you go out into the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The gospel. <laughs> Mark chapter 16, preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. That's what the mission of the church is. That's what the mission of the individual Christian is, really. But the question is, do we trust in the power of God for salvation, or do we think the gospel's just not enough? Now, that was good 2,000 years ago. Those people had never heard it, but now everybody claims to believe in Christ. We need something else to attract them. No, we don't. <laughs> we need the gospel. And if we're not building ourselves up 
and understanding what the gospel is and how better to teach it to others, if we're not working on the spiritual mission of the church, then we've missed it all. I want to reaffirm what we asked sort of as a question at the beginning. The church of Christ is sufficient to manifest the wisdom of God to all the world. If it's sufficient to manifest the wisdom of God to the spiritual realm, it's certainly sufficient to manifest the wisdom of God to the physical realm, to all the world, by the gospel. The question is, will we trust him enough to do his work in his way? I know there were a lot of challenging things that I just laid out before you. I expected that to be the case. And I'm thankful for challenges. They helped me grow. I've had to reevaluate and reevaluate all of these questions many times as I've been working in Brazil, as I've been working here. But our desire is to do the work of the Lord. And our desire then is to reach out to people's souls by doing that. We may not offer them all the entertainment they want. We may not offer them the comfort. Sometimes the gospel steps right on your toes. It's not comfortable, but it's not meant to be. It's meant to change us. And I pray that you'll think about these things. Like I said, God willing, I'll preach some more details about some of these aspects as we go further on. I do intend to get back to Acts 2, looking at the positive side. What did the church do? I don't want this to be a, let's not do anything. That's not the point of this. We want to be an active and growing congregation of the Lord's people. We want to be fulfilling the mission He gave us to do. He has strengthened us for that purpose. And if we don't do anything, we failed as well. The point of this is not saying don't do anything. The point is saying, let's do His work. But let's find out what that is, and then let's do it right, because that's going to glorify Him. And that's going to help people with their souls that need saved. That's what the mission is. And there are lots of people right here in Garden City, right here in Monroeville, right here in Pittsburgh, that obviously still need saving. And so we've got a lot of work to do. But let's do it His way. May He be glorified in what we do. Thank you so much for paying attention. If you're not a Christian, it's the gospel that you need. It's what we're trying to offer. I hope you see that we're dedicated and serious about this as the way we're going through this study. And I pray this has been helpful to you to think through these things. But if you're not a Christian, then you can't even begin to serve properly. You're still under the spell and under the slavehood of the devil. And what you need more than anything is the freedom that the gospel can bring you. God sent his own son to pay the price for your sins by shedding his blood that he can bring you in and give you new life. If you're willing to die with him, to be buried in the waters of baptism and to rise up to a new life, confessing that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, repentant of your sins, to start a new life today, I want to help you do that. <laughs> That's what we're really here for. And if you are a Christian and you've been struggling to understand what his will is for your life, if you've been struggling to, to live the way he's called you to live, we want to help you with that too. God has put us together as a local body to hold each other's hands up as we focus on the spiritual mission he's given us to do. Whatever your need is, if we can help you with it, please make it known. Come forward. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your decision. Make it known to us now.